two, Jeff Cameron Show, 97.9 ESPN Radio. You know, I like this this sort of predictor model that I've seen. It, it, obviously, just using it as a, as a tool. Uh, I'm talking about the NBA Finals last night real quick. Got into football last hour. We'll get into football again next hour. But uh, the Suns take a one-game-to-none lead with the win last night, a comfortable one at that, and a, a game in which Chris Paul just does everything. And uh, I think it's kind of fun. I was looking. I, I think it was who wrote the article. I'll make sure I give credit where credit's due. Zach Cram wrote this article on the NBA odds machine. And, um, what, like, after a result, then you look at the odds. And if you're trying to make a bet on games in a series totals, then it's kind of fun just to look at it historically. And they have a little chart that shows each team's likelihood of advancing through each playoff round, ultimately winning the 2021 title. They simulated the postseasons every day, so they check back. And then, you know, each game changes those percentages. But Suns-Bucks, the highest-ranking outcome they came up with was Suns in five after winning last night, 25% chance. You go to the window with some pizza money on Suns in five? I think I would take the Bucks in that scenario. I would, too. I think Giannis uh, is yeah, just... I, I would, too. He looked pretty much like his usual self, didn't he? I mean, I Giannis did. I, I, that's the thing. I wanted to see how he looked. It was one thing to play and effort to play, and you have to effort to play. You're Giannis. You're the two-time MVP. You, you know what's weird about Giannis? And I think it's because he largely can't shoot. But one of the things that I think we note with him is that he doesn't feel like a two-time MVP, does he? And I think it's just because you look at that guy and you go, well, you're a one-trick pony. It's a good trick. You get into the paint, you're unstoppable. Length, strength, athleticism, toughness. He's a lot of things. So when you see him, you're kind of like, okay. But you realize he can only do one thing, and therefore you don't traditionally. Also, MVPs a lot of times have gone on to win a championship or they've been a part of a, a team with a higher profile than Milwaukee has. So that's another part of it, I guess. But I don't think Milwaukee's done. And they lose 118-105. Uh, and Chris Paul scores. I mean, if, did you, if you looked at the, the scoring for them, 145.8 points per 100 possessions during a game, you know, during a game-changing third quarter. Like, that, that's crazy. They went nuts. They went nuts. But what you would end up doing then is, well, what they say, make adjustments. Yeah, and now that you know that Giannis is actually healthy enough to play and play well, yeah, that changes most things. I mean, at 20 points, 6 of 11 from the field, 17 boards, 4 assists, 2 steals. It's a, it's a good game. It's a good game. He said afterwards, most importantly, and anytime you have a hyperextended knee, uh, you worry about how somebody's going to feel after they play, after they give it a go. He said he feels great. So I would guess that there's a confidence that comes from that as well. So, yeah, I'm with you. I'm going to go more than five games played in this series. And I only really actually pretty much care about this series uh, for, for gambling purposes. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I, do you think the NBA is like, Jesus, we've got Phoenix and Milwaukee in the finals? Phoenix has been fun, uh, fun to root for. Yeah, yeah, no, they have been. They're a fun team. They're, um, But it's also the Phoenix Suns. It's Phoenix and Milwaukee in the finals, my man. 
Um, I, it's that's that's a toughie. Uh, yeah, I don't think that the Bucks are going to win the series necessarily. I mean, they're going to need Giannis to be an MVP on a nightly basis and and own it and go in knowing that he needs to drop twenty eight to thirty five a night and be efficient and be aggressive. Most importantly, don't settle for jump shots because, um, I mean, my man does fall in love with ridiculous threes, and he can't shoot them at all. Oh, the statistics tell you this. This is not like a an opinion, man. He can't shoot. And that's another reason you don't think about him as an MVP, uh, as a two-time MVP, is you're like, well, most MVPs can shoot a little bit. He, he can't really shoot. So it's like, what do you do? I'm not really excited when Ben Simmons pulls up from half court. No. Um, man, I'm looking at Booker and looking at his games and looking at what Chris Paul is doing and the efforts to slow him down. It's crazy. Uh, I, Drew Holiday is going to have to be a lot better for the. I, th- this is just that's that's the biggest thing. It's like we can you look at other areas. Paul has created 122 points via score or assist over his last two games. Did you see? That stat is insane. Now, Booker was just 8 for 21 from the field last night, but did get to the free throw line and hit 10 free throws, 6 assists. So, you know, again, and you look at uh, you look at Aiton, 80% from the floor, uh, you know, high-low passes. He's been great. I mean, this, this is... They're a better team. They're they're a fun team. And and when you talk about they're fun to watch, in that element and in the era of a superstar player, oftentimes having to just take over games and be the best player on the floor, and then you look at usage rates and all of that, you can can tire of that. I think people tire of that. Now, we do know that most of the times, uh, most of the time the team that goes on to win is is a team that has a superstar player and and a Robin. Somebody else that, you know, so Anthony Davis and LeBron, right? You, you, you get a situation where you have one of the three or four best players on the planet and some other guy that's at least a bona fide all-star that can step up and carry the load for you when your guy is tired. And the cool thing is not like the Suns don't have stars, but they feel much more like a team, a balanced team. And that was, for people my age, very commonplace of the era. It wasn't that there weren't superstars. Magic Johnson was a superstar. Larry Bird was a superstar. You know, Michael Jordan, obviously, as we emerged, was a superstar. But you also, back in those days, could name every member of the team. And they all played vital roles. And therefore, you kind of bellied up to those teams, like if, if you could relate to them. Were they, were they blue collar? Were they incredibly athletic and skilled? Were they, were they a team of great shooters? Was, what was it they identified with? A lot of times it had to do with the city that they were from, of course. But... I thought it was always very healthy, and and listen, who's to argue with the NBA success? They've been internationally phenomenal. They they continue to grow, so I'm in the wrong here. But I enjoyed knowing everything there was to know about Portland back in those days, and knowing that you know, whether it was Kevin Duckworth or it was Clyde Drexler or Porter or whoever, you knew the teams. You knew the teams, and you could do it with all of them. Like there were like eight teams. You just knew these core sons of bitches here. These five guys are the guys we're going against. Not just you know, and and that was even true with the Bulls. I mean, Jordan was Jordan, transcendent player, best player of all time. If you want to argue that, that's fine. Six time, you know, world champion. But you knew Pippen and you knew Kukoc and you knew those teams. You knew Cartwright. You knew all those guys. You knew B.J. Armstrong. You knew Steve Kerr later on and Paxson. Everybody. You knew all. All the guys 
And I don't feel like the NBA is that anymore. You pretty much, unless you're a diehard fan, and, and, and a lot of people, especially around where we are right now, are just sort of kind of casual fans. They know the two stars on these super teams, but they don't really know the role players all that well. Whereas Phoenix, you kind of do. You watch them a little bit, and you're like, okay, I see why this works. You got four or five guys. And, of course, Chris Paul is playing over the top good. It's Jeff Cameron, show 97.9 ESPN Radio. Man, this Shikari Richardson story is tough. Not tough to understand. Very straightforward in terms of understanding. Help me if uh, if I've got anything wrong here, Matthew. I don't want to get the story itself wrong. This seems self-explanatory and straightforward. Uh, Nonetheless, it's uh, a brutal life lesson. Cautionary tale. Certainly sheds light on what is uh, seemingly a, a, a silly international rule, given uh, most of the world's stance these days on uh, cannabis. But uh, that said, uh, you know what I think about when I think about this situation? For those that don't know what I'm talking about, Chicago Richardson is a slam dunk gold medalist to be or was uh, for the U.S., uh, but she, she doesn't get a chance to make the trip to the Olympics the U.S. track and field officials announcing yesterday that she won't be added to the women's 4x100 relay uh, team in Tokyo. She's the top American sprinter in the women's 100 meters. She lost her individual spot on the U.S. team on July the 2nd. And the reason she lost the spot or that she was no longer occupying the spot is because she tested positive for THC, which, as we know, is the active ingredient in marijuana. Uh, and she did so at the Olympic trials last month. So there's a 30-day suspension through the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency that's backdated to June 28th and will end before track and field events start in Tokyo, meaning she could have been available for the relay heats August 5th and 6th, as I understand it. Her positive test result negated her trials performance and U.S. team selection. Asked by the Associated Press as she felt, or about how Richardson was taking the news, her agent, Ronaldo Nehemiah, I remember him, track star, football star, said, we haven't spoken about it at all. It was actually not a topic we focused on. In a statement, USATF said it was incredibly sympathetic towards Shikari Richardson's extenuating circumstances and, quote, fully agrees that the international rules regarding marijuana should certainly be reevaluated. We have a heartfelt understanding 
and we share Shikari's concerns. We must also maintain fairness for all the athletes who attempted to realize their dreams by securing a place on the U.S. Olympic track and field team. Richardson had remained hopeful she'd be part of the U.S. team when she addressed her marijuana use in an interview that she did with NBC's Today Show, where she took responsibility for making the decision to smoke marijuana, understanding what the international rules are. Right now, I'm putting all my energy into dealing with what I need to deal with in order to heal myself. If I'm allowed to receive that blessing, then I'm grateful for it. But if not, right now, I'm just going to focus on myself. She said she used marijuana to cope with the unexpected death of her mother, which she learned about during an interview with a reporter just before the races began. Oh. She, she said she emotionally panicked. And external pressure entering the biggest races of her career triggered her decision to use marijuana. The USADA's website identifies marijuana and uh, cannabinoids as substances that are prohibited in competition because they can pose health risks to athletes, enhance performance, and violate the spirit of the sport. None of which I believe to be true across the board. Hence the reason I would reevaluate this. Um, I don't think there is any health risks to the other athletes or to the athlete themselves. I don't believe no more so than say drugs that are completely legal and not tested for like, you know, alcohol. Enhance performance. Nope. Doesn't enhance performance and violate the spirit of the sport. How? What are we talking about? That's nonsense. So no, no, that's, I would dismiss that on its face. Uh, I, I, she did accept the consequences for breaking the rule that um, deep down Wada knows probably is wrong. I mean, they, they know it. They know it. Oh, that's just tough. I, this is cut and dry. Not everything is has to be complicated. Those rules are in place. You cannot like the rules. I don't. I think they're incredibly uh, antiquated and and scientifically uh, unjust and unfair and 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 not accurate. Uh, but but I. The rule is in place, and the athlete understands it. And those circumstances centered around why she chose to use when she did is certainly something we can be sympathetic towards and understand, my God, I, I can't imagine even competing, uh, given that news right before you race, let alone winning and qualifying and, and, and all of that. Oh, It's just a blank show. Oh, my goodness. That's tough, man. That, it, but, but it is straightforward. I was looking for the out. I was looking for how do we do it. It is straightforward. And now this will be the case that sees that rule changed. But it doesn't help her any. I mean, I get it. I, I could picture somebody right now, you know, pounding their, their fist. She knew the rule. Oh, geez. Just stop. But, yeah. But, yeah. That's the tough part where you're like, Okay, I actually look at it a little differently in the sense that I'm very empathetic, but at the same time, the rule is the rule. It was in place. Everybody knows it. That's it. That's all. We're done here. Hopefully, it's the impetus for change. Jeff Cameron, show 97.9 ESPN Radio.
Got asked a question yesterday on headlines. Who's a player that played for, in this case, it was our tribal Florida or Miami, that um, that you liked, that you wished had been a knoll in, in our case? or, or and, I, and I carry that over. I'm curious your answer. I think the longer you're a sports fan, and, and I carry this over to the pros, you might end up going from loathing a player and having great disdain for who they are, who they play for, how good they are. There might be a jealousy uh, element to this, to eventually having respect, like they do something good long enough that eventually you go, okay, all right, I've come around on you. I like you. And Steve Smith is always the answer that Tom and I have given as Bucks fans because he's in our division forever seemingly, you know, with Carolina, and he was just such a red ass that if you played against him, you just got so tired of how chippy and angry he always was. But then after a while, you realize there's nobody tougher, and he makes all the plays. And most importantly, at the end of the day, he just cares. And I think when you're a fan, that's more than anything else what can win you over. Does that guy just give a damn as much as you feel like you give a damn? Or that they should give a damn? I mean, I get leery of fans applying their level of passion to other players who are actually in the sport and saying they should care as much as they, you know, I do because they're paid a lot of money. That's just jealousy of money. But I do think that when we watch teams, any organization, any sport we love, whether it's college or pro, we have a certain expectation that you're going to play with the requisite intensity that reveals how much you care about the outcome of the game, how much you you know, that's why fans get so frustrated with the modern player and how cozy they are with opposing players. Like, the, it, there was never a time when I watched basketball in the 80s and 90s in which, well, we'll use the NBA Finals, for example. You'd be watching an NBA Finals game, and you saw the best player on the on the one team go up to the other player on the other team, or that you would read about them hanging out the night before and having dinner. I'm not saying it never happened, but there's a level of get you some and what for and intensity to a rivalry trying to achieve a championship goal that wouldn't allow you really to fraternize, for lack of a better term, with the enemy. Maybe in the offseason, maybe you'd catch up in the summertime or something and you would, you know, share a beer or something. But during a series or on a playoff run, never. And most of the time it elicited a special kind of anger. Like, okay, you're standing in the way of something I desperately want and you're my biggest threat. You possibly could be the reason that we don't get this thing done. Yeah, go to hell. Maybe we'll talk later. Now, that's not saying you didn't have respect. You could have immense respect for a player, and you should most of the time, especially if that player is really good, good enough that you fear them uh, keeping you from your dreams, then you do respect them. You you know they're good, and you know what they're going to bring to the table. You know they're going to bring a whole lot of what for. So you think, okay, well, I know what he's about. And you always know those guys, man. You know them when you're practicing a sport in Little League on up. That guy that just cares an awful lot about kicking your ass. And even though it it angers you and you get a little frustrated, you're like, we can't take a playoff, we can't take a rest here every now and again, pal, the answer from him is a resounding no, and therefore he elevates your game, and so you respect it. I think my answer, as far as the NFL goes, um, I have two, and they're actually both – uh, they actually both played for Washington. All right, so I was going to say, you as an Eagles fan have to name me a member of the Dallas Cowboys, Washington football team. You don't really have any um, – the Giants? Maybe the Giants? So I, would you say Philadelphia – would you say Washington or Dallas is your biggest rival? Dallas, isn't it? Dallas. Yeah. 
Well, from what just the from two Washington. that came to mind um, immediately were uh, Clinton Portis mm-hmm. and uh, London Fletcher. Well, Fletcher was awesome. I love London Fletcher. He's hard he not was to a, yeah, He's a tough tackling machine. Yeah. Every time you looked up, you're like, really? Luke Keekley. Good God. There's no reason, no reason for a guy to be that good for that long and do the things that he did 16 concussions into a career. For Dallas, I would say Sean Lee. He's always hurt, though. I know. But he he, he could play. Oh, when he played, he was good. Yeah. And he cared. Because oh, yeah, after, like, the fourth ACL tear, he's maybe just give there. it up. Yeah. But, no, he's coming back. Still out there. Yeah, you're like, holy hell, really? Yeah. I, you know, that kind of question usually resonates more with the 14-year-old me than the 50-year-old me. Now I respect a lot of players on teams or franchises that I didn't care for growing up. I just know how hard it is to get there, how hard it is to emerge and be good at that sport, that sport in particular. Like, I, football is so, I mean, we, we talk about it all the time. It's a gladiatorial sport. People go through hell. Just to play on Sundays. Just to play on Sundays. It's like I used to think about this all the time in high school. Like you, you, you do anything that you were told to do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday because Friday night, 7 o'clock, 7.30, you were going to kick off and you were going to get a chance to play in the game. And that's that was everything. And so on Tuesday doing leg lifts in 98-degree heat and humidity, you think, this not a lot of fun. I don't like this. I don't like it. I'd rather be anywhere but right here. But... Every time you thought that, you realized, Friday night, right around the corner, can't wait to get it on. Let's go. So I, I have a lot of respect for almost anybody who's able to reach that level, unless you do asinine things. If you're a cheap shot artist, if you're an excuse maker, if you're somebody that routinely blames others or the media for your woes or something along those, I, you know, okay, I can. You know, there are bad guys. There are guys who get in trouble all the time and guys who've done, whose missteps involve abuse, for example, you know, of children or women, yeah, no, I got no time for that, and I actually root for you to get hurt. And then people are re- people recoil when they hear that. But no, if you're a bad guy who abuses women or children, no, I'm not rooting for you, and I don't care if you get hurt. I can't tell you how many times I rooted for Adrian Peterson to to get hurt. Yeah, after break he, a leg you know, or... after he beat his child with a switch. Yeah, to the point that he was bleeding from his genitals. Yeah, no, not a good guy. Not a good guy. Not okay. Not all right. Well, segueing off that, I. <laughs> <laughs> I always liked Romo. There's not a lot to dislike about Tony Romo. No, I and didn't he understand blamed, all he the got, hate. Yeah, well, he got blamed for a lot of things. But when you're the quarterback and you keep coming up short, your team keeps coming up short in spectacular fashion. I mean, nothing worse than dropping the extra point attempt. That's a toughie. That's a toughie. And so that image of you scrambling to pick up the ball and run it in, and you're like, oh, man. No, not a lot to dislike about him, and he's a fantastic analyst, a fantastic analyst. Yeah, when when you're a little kid, you can really build a resentment towards anybody that sweeps your dreams off the porch, right, that says, nope. And so anytime, that, you know, the Bucks weren't real good when I was little, but the few times they were, you know, there there were times that you could, there was, there was a team that you had to overcome, and you'd be like, yeah, God, these guys. Oof. But in baseball, you know, I, I've said this countless times. I don't hold the vitriol for the Braves that I did in my 20s. But my vitriol stems not from being like Tom hates the Braves because they're in the same division. But for me, 
the Pirates and the Braves in the postseason are heartbreaking losses, like the most heartbreaking losses a fan can experience. And so I just hated them. I just They were responsible for devastation. And I heaped all of this hate on them because it when the Pirates lost Game 7 on the Sid Bream play, as it's known, um, it was the end of relevance. So everybody in Pittsburgh and anybody who rooted for that team knew you were watching Andy Van Slyke for the last time in a Pirate uniform. You were watching Barry Bonds for the very last time in a Pirates uniform. You were watching Bobby Bonilla for the very last time in a Pirates uniform. And it's a loaded team. I mean, Jose Lean, you name it. You were watching those guys, Spanky Lavalier. You were watching them for the last time. Even oddly enough, like Orlando Merced, like I, that bothered me that I wasn't going to get to see him. And he went like, <laughs> ridiculous. But there were players, Jay Bell, that I just loved. I loved to watch them play. That's funny. That's funny. I have those players too. Yeah, you just love them. From the Phillies. And they're not even, they weren't like your all-stars. They're just nice players. Raul Abanez. You loved them. Shane Victorino. Shane Victorino. Yeah, well, you know what's funny is years later, the stars, they speak for themselves, the careers they had, whether or not they're Hall of Fame worthy. The kid in you always tends to better associate or relate to the guy that's not that, that's not preternaturally great, that clearly has to work real hard to hit 262. You know, like, is given everything they got to go, oh, here's the slash line for Jay Bell, 253, 12, and 70. But he's out here getting it. He's working hard every day to get to that 253, 12, and 70, and he's picking it on defense. And he'll lay in front of you. He'll do whatever he has to do to make a play. Like, you love that guy because you were likely that guy. You weren't preternaturally great. You, If you were, you'd have gone on to play college baseball or whatever. You know what I mean? So that's why you relate to those guys. I loved them. Yeah, man, that's that's funny. There were <laughs> there were so many players. It's the uh, utility player of yesteryear, uh, the guy that the jack of all trades that played five positions any given night. You're like, look at my man out here. He's out here playing right field tonight. Tomorrow will be at short or wherever the hell we need him. Dave Concepcion doing everything he can. Not a great player. But he'll be he'll give you everything he's got on a given night. And damn it, if we need a guy who's got to take some rest, I know Concepcion's gonna be out there. Adequately defending and maybe going one for four. Okay, I'll take that. He'll run the base as well. He's not gonna make any glaringly stupid plays. I like you. It's Jeff Cameron Show 979 ESPN Radio. And she could see it in the factory. She's making sure she is not dreaming. Garrett Cole and Raldis Chapman struggle the way they have for the Yankees is not only uplifting and joyous to take in. It is curious. Baseball being closely monitored as it is 
right now uh, to find out what's what. Uh, later in the show, you'll you'll hear some staggering numbers in terms of dominance from Jacob Degrom, and clearly Jacob Degrom was not relying heavily on using the sticky stuff to create spin rate and uh, elusive pitches to hit. Right? I mean, he obviously just can pitch. Yeah, for those who follow the spin rate stats, um, he his spin rate even since the crackdown, has gone up in some instances or stayed the same. So no effect whatsoever. So that's a sweat and rosin guy. You know, there are guys that will tell you they're just sweat and rosin guys. That's enough for them to be able to create what they need to create. So then you would start to look at which guys have seen this turn south in a hurry. And and Garrett Cole would, would, would be that guy. Now, again... Garrett Cole on his way to the All-Star game. But my man signed a nine-year, $324 million deal after the 2019 season. Pitched to a 178 ERA, allowed 14 earned runs and five home runs in his first 11 starts this season. Struck out 97 and walked just nine. Since June the 3rd, when they said, no more, guys, we're checking you. You can't have all that stuff all over the ball. Sweat and rosin, that's it, that's all. He's allowed 20 earned runs, 10 home runs, over 34 and a third innings. He's walked 11, struck out 38. His ERA in that span is 5-2-4. From May 28th to Sunday, this past Sunday, Cole's overall ERA rose over a run per game. Quote, I mean, there's been some good things in there, too. This game reminds me of a little bit of the Tampa Bay game. I think earlier in the year, we got beat on change-ups, Cole said, when asked if there was a relationship between the crackdown and his struggles. By no means are those balls getting really rocked around the field right now. Now, Chapman has denied, for his part, using any foreign sticky, sticky substances but uh, that slide seems to coincide with Cole's slide, or moreover, since the June 3rd crackdown. Gave up a home run to Pete Alonzo without recording an out in the seventh on Sunday. Chapman has allowed 14 earned runs, five home runs in his last nine appearance, including four blown saves. Opponents are hitting a robust 483 against him in that stretch. Prior to that, he had allowed just one earned run in his first 23 uh, innings of the season. I mean, now that one is a little bit more stark in contrast. That You go from allowing one earned run in 23 innings to since the crackdown, opponents hitting 483, giving up 14 earned runs and five bombs. I mean, dongs being hit left and right out here off of Chapman. So it will be interesting. Uh Garrett Cole seems to be the poster child for pitchers' use of foreign substances to get better spin rates. This is a little inside baseball, but since the lock, since the crackdown, Cole's fastball has been down 159 RPM, and his slider has been down 229 RPM. It's um. Obviously, without even having to know a lot about what all that means, pretty staggering to read. And, yeah, you can – look, there are a number of articles lately. Um, you know, go back to to when Josh Donaldson of the Twins called out 
Garrett Cole and noted that Cole's spin rates had dropped suddenly after Major League Baseball sent the message about the crackdown by suspending four minor league pitchers. And Hal Steinbrenner of the Yankees dismissed, dismissed concerns at that time about Cole and Chapman. And any time one of the Steinbrenners, any of them, criminals as they are, decide to uh, say that something's not a problem, then you, you know that, in fact, it is. <laughs> Do you think it's a well-known secret which pitchers... Yes. Okay. Because Donaldson did that the other day, too. Oh, he's calling he out a people left and right, yeah. off of uh, Giolito yeah, and, he, and, and screamed, he told him about it. it. It doesn't spin anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was funny. He set it around in the bases. And then he was he called him out again. Yeah, and, and Giolito, you know, thought it was childish. But then afterwards, Donaldson said something to the effect of, look, man, I'm just telling you what's what. The ball's not spinning anymore. I think if you're a hitter, both sides are petty, and baseball is a sport where both of these groups of players, pitchers and, and position players, uh, I mean hitters, uh, have gone back and forth in their efforts to swindle the other for as long as the game has been around. You know, it, it, it's remarkable. We think about the steroid era, and you think about what Pedro Martinez did during the, you know, the steroid era. That is in crazy numbers, uh, should be noted. But, like, hitters were cheating. And we know pitchers were cheating, too, without question. But clearly, hitters got a major advantage during the steroid era. I mean, they stood on top of the plate. They wore all kinds of shields. And they got up to about 270 pounds and flicked the ball. Oppo, 440 feet on the regular. Little dudes hit 40 home runs playing second base. I mean... Pitchers couldn't keep up with the level of cheating uh, induced by performance-enhancing drugs. And then and then suddenly the crackdown came and, and pitchers got the upper hand. But then we found out, you know, again, most recently that their cheating in terms of using the quote-unquote sticky stuff, and sticky stuff increased over the last 15 years, year in and year out, exponentially. This is what you saw over and over again. It got more, Once the secret got out that not only did it help you hold on to the baseball and give you more control over the baseball, that, that's one thing. And hitters lived with that because, again, they don't want to get hit by 98 in the head. So the thought was, okay, well, they, it just helps them better grip the baseball. We already know they use rosin mixed with sweat, sometimes with sunblock. It's the kind of thing that gives them better control. When they figured out, when the, when the science favored them, when they began to look at it scientifically, like, oh, wait a minute. If you achieve this much spin rate, even if a ball is hit, it's not going to go anywhere. So hard hit balls and the velocity off of balls put in play drop precipitously. When the spin rates, and there was a magic number, and I don't recall what that magic number is, but pitchers began to understand that they were on a quest for a certain spin rate. And Bauer has talked about this and others have talked about this, that the evidence, it wasn't just a small sample size. Once they got an exceedingly large sample size of any ball that is contacted that achieves this certain spin rate seems to be less effective in terms of exit velo and all of that. Like, they, they, yeah, you can get a hit, but you're not going to hit it 450 feet. You, you may get something that you know drops in but you're just not going to be able to generate more hard-hit balls. And also, just looking, you know, anecdotally, when you watch pitchers over the last two to three years, we were talking about the stuff we'd see from guys coming in out of the bullpen, and we weren't just talking about MPH. We're talking about looking at guys, and you're going, what? balls cannot do that. 
physics suggests that a ball cannot do that. I, I don't. That ball looks like a wiffle ball. Things are doing. Things are. are that ball's behaving oddly. I mean, hitters have zero chance. So then it just became this eternal quest from every pitcher in the league. How do we get there? How do I create this? Uh, and, and so you saw all of this ratcheted up to a place where you coupled it with the shift. You coupled it with how many guys could throw 100 and how many guys can create that kind of spin rate. And it became common knowledge that everybody was doing it. Then baseball had to step in. But they're, they're never proactive enough soon enough as we discussed about. So now you end up doing this haphazard effort or approach to uh, enforcing the rule that's already been on the books forever. And some players get hurt. Others find that they aren't able to adapt immediately. Now, nobody's going to cry a river for pitchers. And nobody's going to say that this isn't good for the game to see more action on balls put in play. We need that. But I would say it does seem certainly a bit unfair that, you know, midstream, I've got to figure out an entirely different way to do what I've done for 15 years or 12 years. And again, boo-hoo, I was cheating. But it was wink, wink, nod, nod from the league, and everybody knew it, and that includes hitters. Now all of a sudden you've decided enough's enough because people are walking away from your sport and guys are hitting collectively a buck 97, and I've got to figure this out on the fly. And, yeah, man, I'm getting hit around a little bit. I'm losing some control. I can't do things that I used to be able to do. I understand their frustration. Again, I'm not going to really lose sleep over this because I think there have been rules put in place now that help baseball moving forward. A, the ball would be put in play more often. Batting average as a team will go up. Hard hit ball rates will go up. That's important. Seeing 5-4 games or 6-5 games where we get a nice mixture of fielding and good pitching and power hitting and everything else and, and, and guys, runners are moving and all that, that's a better baseball game than watching a bunch of one to nothing 17 strikeout games. It just is. And forevermore, as we begin to see this change in baseball, on the nights where a guy like DeGrom does his thing and dominates, you know it's on the up and up because they're checking him. So you can appreciate the accomplishment that much more and you can be like, look at this, my man is doing this even in this era. So that's impressive. But also... I mean, I think long-term for baseball, they had made so many – there had been so many advances where the science had surpassed the offensive play in baseball. So, like, understanding hit charts and then advancing those even more to having – spray charts, I should say, and then having a – we end up seeing the shift. The shift gets implemented. At first, it's just the Rays doing it. And they're considered to be, you know, way ahead of the curve. All of a sudden, the Rays are shifting for every single batter, and they believe in it, and the analytics tell them to do so, and they don't care. Night in, night out, they're doing it. And there are nights where they get burned by it, and they got to answer questions because of it. And Joe Madden's out there answering questions. Later on, Kevin Cash is out there answering questions, and they never waver. They know the evidence suggests we're going to be right in this, and yet tonight we got hurt. Three balls that got through would have never gotten through if we were set up traditionally, but that's all right. We believe in the long run. More often than not, this is going to favor us, and they don't waver. And then guess what? A season plays out, and the Rays go to the damn World Series, or they go back to the playoffs, and they spend a third of the money that the rest of the teams in that division spend, and everybody goes, the Rays are on to something. Yeah, they got good players. They're well run, and they believe in the science, the analytics, the math, and then everybody begins to employ it, and slowly it trickles throughout the league, and nobody can get a damn hit. And it's like, well, what do we do? So they're doing the right thing. I would like to see them get rid of the shift. I, I could, I could, that wouldn't bother me. Wouldn't bother me. I don't know that they're going to need to. Let's continue to monitor this, though. Let's see where this goes. Final hour forthcoming. Stay with Jeff Cameron Show, 97.9 ESPN Radio. Don't it make you?